Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection. We'll continue centering ourselves through a breath prayer. It's prayed internally, silently, connected to our breath. And so on the inhale, we pray, Gracious God, and on the exhale we pray, lead us by your spirit. So let's take a few moments to pray that together. Gracious God, lead us by your spirit. As we're gathered here, we come from a variety of experiences this past week. Different concerns, worries, hopes, and goals. But however we find ourselves right now, we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us 
is fully known, fully loved. And at the same time, you move toward us in the sacrificial, self-giving love of the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. In all the ways we get it, in all the ways we don't get it. In all the ways we're moving forward, in all the ways we're moving backward or sideways or slipping. In all the ways we're frantic or stagnant. And you love us. And so we pray now that as we open your scriptures, you teach us by your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and this world would be renewed. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I mentioned before that lately Florence and I have been going on these city walks, and the saga continues as we walk every block of downtown San Diego. If you're into the uh, kind of the athletic app Strava, you can follow me on that and kind of see what we're doing through there. If you're on Instagram, follow Florence. She'll tell you all about it. It's been amazing. And I mentioned before that you know, I'm used to seeing the city on two wheels. I love cycling. And I always say two wheels is the best way to see a city. Because you, you're outside the car, you're in the air, you can get the scent and the smell and the sound and you can stop and all of that. But on two feet is even more amazing if you really want to discover the city because you can stop and you read the plaques and you learn about the history of this place. But we found a way to take it to another level. We're kind of doubling down on the gas lamp district right now, which is the most historic part of San Diego from a Western perspective besides Old Town and Cabrillo National Monument. When it was started in 1850 by a guy whose last name was Davis, it was called Newtown. So they're just like us, renew San Diego. What's your purpose to renew San Diego? Well, what, where's the old towns? It's in Old Town. Where's the new town? It's at Newtown. It's a very simple naming convention down here. And anyways, there's a, his house is on the corner of 4th and Island, and it's now a museum. So our family went there yesterday, and it was take your kids to walk day. I said, we took our kids, Benjamin came along, and we went to the museum, and now we have this, like, this map. It's like a treasure map of all the cool stuff in Newtown. But then we could speak to a docent and ask more questions and hear from an expert, someone who's really deep and lives and breathes this stuff. And so you, you start looking at these layers of our city where you go, okay, now that's a Cuban restaurant, but it was the city's first funeral parlor, and that is where they kept the bodies while they were waiting to bury them. You know, it's like you just kind of see these different layers going on here. Um, what, was, what was the word that was used often? Notorious? It was, a, it was a word that told you that things of ill repute took place in this structure. And that word was used quite often down there on 5th and 4th uh, Avenues, which I guess some people would say that today, so some things never change. We went to the oldest bar called the Tivoli, oldest bar in San Diego. This is a place where Wyatt Earp used to hang out all the time. And there's like old photos and um, just historic memorabilia. It's a total dive bar. And Florence goes... Isn't it just like too bad that this place with so much history has become this dive bar? I said, honey, there used to be a brothel on the second floor. Don't you? This has always been a dive bar. They just wore different clothes back then. <laughs> um, so anyways, but we, we learn these different layers by speaking to an expert. Right? You can know San Diego by walking it, but you can know it well by being among a real teacher. And I think that's part of what's happening in this passage. We have this person named Nicodemus. And if you're if you're born in 1980 or earlier, you might think it's funny if we call this Nick at Night. Nicodemus comes to him at night. That was an old show, like, show on TV. If you're born after 1980, you're like, why would that ever be funny? So Nick at Night. 
Nicodemus, what do we know about him? He's a Pharisee. So that means he's part of the ruling class of the religious establishment of Jerusalem. He was well-educated. He was connected. He was sophisticated. He had access. He didn't have to stand in line at the restaurant. He didn't have to make a reservation. He had access, education, affluence, and position in society. He had knowledge. He knew the Torah. He knew the law. He knew the scriptures, which makes it pretty interesting when he goes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, you teach me. Right? This would be like if you went to a Harvard graduate level class and the professor said, actually, you're the expert. Like, you teach me, please. The Harvard professor is going to Jesus and saying, please teach me. I know that you're a teacher who's come from God. No one can do what you're doing apart from the presence of God. And Jesus responds, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Later he says in verse 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born by water and spirit. So you can't enter it unless God does something mysterious. You can't even see it unless you're born again. Now, we have to just kind of talk about the elephant in the room. Some of you, as soon as you hear the word born again and Christian, you're like, if this is one of those kind of churches, I'm out of here. Because for many people, the word born again Christian conjures up a certain type of person that often insists that true faithfulness to God includes an overly emotional, cathartic experience, and if you're not as fired up as they are all the time, then you're probably not as faithful as they are all the time. Maybe that's in your mind. Or maybe it's someone who had a complete turnaround in their life, and the moral and ethical structure of Christianity has been very helpful to them, and now they insist that if you're a true Christian too, you will always be demonstrating your moral and ethical structure like they do. And so oftentimes, if the first thing you find out about the person coming to the cocktail party is they're a born-again Christian, you're trying to find out how do you find a seat far away, right? That's not what this is talking about. That's not what this is talking. In fact, that's kind of that would be kind of academically incorrect, historically incorrect. Every creed of both of, of the sides of the Christian family, the Protestant side, the Catholic side, the Eastern Orthodox side, all of them talk about the importance of new birth in one way or another. And Jesus says, you have to be born again to even see the kingdom of God. So let's just look at it. The necessity of the new birth the extremity of the new birth, the means of the new birth, how it happens in the impact or the result of new birth in your life. The necessity of the new birth. So Nicodemus comes to him at night. And part of what this is teaching us is Nicodemus is interested in Jesus. But he's not all in. He's just checking it out like maybe you or I would. He's not willing to bet at all at this point. And so he doesn't want to lose his day job or his access or his standing in society, so he doesn't go in the daytime, he goes at night. This is kind of conjuring up images of in hiding or veiledness or secrecy. But what I love is that Jesus honors that. Jesus doesn't say, come back during my office hours. Come back when you're not ashamed to be seen with me. He'll meet Nicodemus whenever Nicodemus is ready. Maybe there are parts of your life right now that feel like darkness. Maybe there are parts of your life right now that are secret or hidden. Maybe there are parts of your life that you don't want to come into the light. And Jesus says, I will meet you right there. All you have to do is open yourself. And so Nicodemus comes, the model person, religious but open-minded, leadership, ruling class, Loves and obeys the Bible, is serious about God, but also humble and calls Jesus the rabbi, wealthy and connected, the extreme insider. 
extreme insider. Next chapter, John 4, and we'll talk about this next week, you'll see the extreme outsider. If there was anybody that Jesus could just say, continue what you're doing, it was Nicodemus. But he cuts him off. He says, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Why would he say this to Nicodemus? To show how necessary it is. The new birth. Martin Luther King Jr. has a quote in your worship folder. I'll read it to you. You can just turn back to it later if you'd like to. It's on page six-ish. Seven. Nope, six. Martin Luther King says, One night a Pharisee came to Jesus and he wanted to know what he could do to be saved. Jesus didn't get bogged down in the kind of isolated approach of what he shouldn't do. Jesus didn't say, Now Nicodemus, you must stop lying. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must stop cheating if you're doing that. He didn't say, Nicodemus, now you must stop drinking liquor if you're doing that excessively. He said something altogether different. Because Jesus realized something basic. That if a man will lie, he will steal. And if a man will steal, he will kill. So instead of just getting bogged down in one thing, Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He said, in other words, your whole structure must be changed. Why? And here's the hard truth. In the letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He said, you weren't just spiritually ignorant. You weren't just spiritually weak. You weren't simply spiritually unaware or asleep at the wheel. You were dead. What can a dead person do to bring themselves back to life? Nothing. He's saying you must be born again. You must be made new by the power of God in your life because you can't do it yourself. Which means two things. On one hand, it means that there's nobody bad enough to be disqualified. But it also means there's nobody good enough to qualify yourself. I had this one day where uh, one of the things I love about the calling of being a pastor is I try to meet with people in their place of work or their place of living or their favorite place in town. I just want to understand who you are, walk a mile in your shoes. And, I, and there was this day where I had my first meeting of the day was a breakfast downtown at a very decrepit corner where, I mean, just people are kind of in zombie land with various states of addiction and, and all, mental health and all of that. And my lunch, so this was with a person who our church was helping to come off the streets and out of addiction and was advocating for housing for them. And my lunch was at one of these Robber Baron Central, like, you know, $20,000 a year business person clubs at the top floor of whatever building. Like, you know, just kind of like so high up there you get a nosebleed type thing. And what I realized as I was reflecting on my day, going from skid row to the top floor, was that everyone needs Jesus. We just need him in different ways, or, or maybe it presents itself in different ways. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, whether, whether you are the ultimate insider or the ultimate outsider, whether you feel like you have it all together or you're coming undone, you need to be born again. You think I've come to teach you. I've come to save you. You need more than teaching. You need a whole new life. Which brings us to the extremity of the new birth. See, have you ever been around 
a baby being born. I've been three of my own children and probably 20 other births I've been around in the room. And let me tell you something. It is extreme. It is rarely, I mean, aside from uh, anesthetics and epidurals and all of that, and if, gentlemen, if you don't know what an epidural is, ask any woman and she will tell you. Aside from that, it is generally an extreme moment. So if you're exploring Jesus, note that Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, are you a new teacher for me to learn from? And Jesus says, I've not come to merely teach you, but to redo you entirely. Not to eliminate you, but to make you flourish. It's extreme. It's a process. It, it's not all roses. Jesus doesn't give him a bait and switch and say, coming to me is like going on a cruise. And it's all the good stuff all the time. He says, it's messy like birth. It's painful sometimes like birth. It's not all roses, but there's new life coming from what I will do in you. C.S. Lewis says, most of us go to God saying, if you would come into my life, please just fix the roof on my cottage. And Jesus says, I want to turn you into a castle. I want to do something entirely new in you. Is your vision of life with Jesus that big? Do you know what he's saying? God wants to do supernatural work on your heart by his spirit. Giving you the mind, the heart, the will. With a whole new direction. That's extreme. Now how does he do it? Let's focus on this. The means of new birth. When a baby's born, who brings about the birth? Not the baby. The baby has very little say in it. The baby doesn't say, I want to be born. I think I'll do it. You don't go and get yourself born. Birth happens to you. The baby doesn't do a thing. It's all the mother. The baby is brought into the world through the mother's labor, through the mother's pain, through the mother's bearing of all that weight all those months. Somebody, think about this, somebody else suffered, somebody else was burdened, somebody else is in labor, someone else is in anguish, someone else is bleeding so this baby can be born. Don't you see how different this is? Christianity is not a self-help religion. You can't make yourself a Christian. You can't say, I want all these good feelings that the Christians around me seem to have, or I want this kind of power in my life, and so I'm just going to pray enough to make it happen. How does it happen? Jesus gives us a clue. He says in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What's he talking about? There's a scene in Numbers 21 where the Israelites have been liberated from slavery in Egypt and they're moving through the wilderness to the promised land. God has just protected them, rescued them, and saved them. And then they start grumbling. They start grumbling among themselves. God's brought manna from heaven and the quail and the food and the provided water from the rock and given them all that they need and led them through the desert by day and by night. And they start grumbling. I can picture this because I walked the city with my kids yesterday. You hear them behind you. 
Uh, when's lunch going to be? Uh, how much fun is going to be? And they're like, and they start saying these kind of like, it, it's um, spiritual amnesia. They're like, well, maybe it was just better back in Egypt because at least we had food. It's like, you were slaves in Egypt. It was not good. You left for a reason. And it gets difficult. And so what happens is, it's kind of this interesting mysterious scene in Numbers 21 where God sends this essential plague of venomous snakes and these snakes bite the people and the solution to it is God tells Moses, "Here, get this serpent and put it around a pole and lift it up and anybody who looks at the venomous serpent will be rescued and will be saved. And so that's what happens. Why do you think God did that? Oh, by the way, the snake around the pole is still the, kind of the international symbol of medical healing. You see it on every paramedic's truck. You see it outside the emergency room. All of that. That comes from this. Why did God do that? Here's what I think. I think God made it urgent for the people out of love. I think God said, I see the venom in your heart. I see the way you self-sabotage. I see the way that you hurt others. I see your selfishness and your self-absorption and the venom in your heart is far more insidious and danger than the venom in any of these snakes. And so he rescues them. He wakes them up. How does he do it? Jesus says, just as the people Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And what he's saying is, for the venom in your heart, for the sickness in this world, for the brokenness of all creation, I am the one who will be lifted up. And how is he lifted up? On the wood of a cross. On the cross, he takes the venom of the whole world upon himself emptying himself of his power, embodying and embracing the powerlessness of this world, letting it do a number on him literally to the point of death. And three days later, on the first Easter, with the empty tomb of the resurrection, he shows that he has power even over death, power to heal. And so how do you access it? He says, just look at me. That's it. Look at me and trust me. It's not good enough to just say, I need some help, or just top me off, or I've generally got it all together in my life. Just a little bit more help, please. Get me from a 98 to a 99. No, you have to say, I'm dying. I'm spiritually dead. I may be successful in these areas of life. I may have these things all put together. I may be able to project this image. But when I fall asleep at night, the truth of the matter is I'm lost and I need you. And in that moment, you're actually in the best position you could possibly be because you're finally looking to the one who can rescue you. That healing serpent in the wilderness is a glimpse, is a pointer to Jesus, the good physician who will be lifted up for you. And all you have to do is look. 
So it's not the strongest, it's not those who aren't too sick, who can muscle and pull themselves up and crawl to the serpent. Those ones will be healed. No, it's anyone who would just look. What are you looking at? What's captivated your attention in life? Some of you want to climb. You want to do it yourself. You've climbed your whole life, and you're exhausted. He says, look to me. Others of you say, I know I can't climb. And Jesus says, that's okay. I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. Look to me. Now, what's the result? What's the impact? Nicodemus is an interesting case study because we don't know how this story ends, this part of Nicodemus' life. All we know is he came, he asked a question, Jesus spoke with him, and then he kind of, you know, just fades out. But we do see him again. We see him in John chapter 19 after Jesus has been crucified. And whereas here he's coming under the cover of night to be secret, after Jesus has been publicly crucified, Nicodemus comes out in public and buries him with a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Think about that. Jesus has just been crucified by the confluence of the Roman Empire and the temple establishment authority in Jerusalem of whom Nicodemus was a part. Those are his people. And as Jesus has died on the cross, he goes out in public to ask for the body to bury Jesus. Something happened in that man's life to take him from cowardice to courage, from night to day, from inaction to action, from height to humility, because also the action of burying a dead body was considered ritualistically unclean or impure, and so really only servants would be doing that work. And now here's the Pharisee, Nicodemus, burying Jesus. It actually mentions the way in which he prepares Jesus' body with myrrh. These are spices that would be used to anoint royalty. He's giving him a king's burial. Something has happened in Nicodemus' life. And I think he realized that his question, how can I be saved? How can I be rescued? It's not a strategy. It's not a paradigm. It's not ten steps to your best life. Salvation is a person and his name is Jesus. God in the flesh. God with us. And I think he experienced new birth. He sees Jesus as a king, new life in Jesus, and he moves toward him where Jesus is more important to him than his money. He doesn't mind using his money to buy expensive things for Jesus. Jesus is more important to him than his safety or his standing and status in society. What's most important to you? And do you see how being born again, this new birth, this new life that operates like wind, Jesus says, it's like wind where you can see its effects, but you can't map out where it started or where it ends. So it is with people of the Spirit. You become inexplicable people. Where people say, where do you get that kind of joy? 
Where do you get that kind of resiliency or buoyancy? Where do you get the backbone to endure this difficult moment without lashing out at others? Where do you get the resources to forgive yourself when you fail? I, I, this is a whole other sermon, but I had a great conversation with a friend last week, not a church-going person at all, and he's the one asking me the question, how do I absolve myself of my sins? Where did you learn that, that language? The answer is you can't. But when you know that you've been born again and he forgives you, loves you, renews you, you have a new resource altogether. You become a person like the wind. I use this analogy often. If you go down to San Diego Bay today, there's going to be a good wind out there. And if you see a sailboat bobbing in the, in the bay there with, with the sail down, it's not moving, the wind's not acting on it. What would, you, what would your advice be to the captain to get that boat to move? Put the sail up. Right? It's not the sailor's job to make the wind blow. It's the sailor's job to catch the wind. Jesus says, the wind of the Spirit is already blowing in your life and in this world. What are you doing to put up the sail and catch it? This is part of what these practices of Lent are all about. Praying, fasting, caring for the poor. These are the things that we can do to get the sail up and start moving in this world. And when that happens in your life, you experience new birth again and again. And this church becomes an inexplicable community in the city. People say, where do you get the fuel to do that? Where do you get the drive to do that? Where do you get the inspiration to do that? You're transforming the world. Friends, this is our calling. May we experience the Spirit together today and be agents of that Spirit wherever we go. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would break through with your Spirit in our lives. That you would wake us up to your grace like you woke up Nicodemus in his life. That you would encourage us where we need encouragement. Challenge us where we need to be pressed. Support us where we feel weak or weary. Give us a compelling vision of life with you together. And then make us a compelling sign of your grace in this world. We pray these things in your name. Amen.